And for the people who are new, my name is Charles Small, and I'm the director of YISA, which is the Yale Initiative for the Interdisciplinary Study of Antisemitism. And just very briefly, this is the first um, seminar in our seminar series, and I think all of you have been uh, passed out or issued with. Um, <laughs> original. Um, so the schedule is here. We have some other good lectures uh, coming up this semester as well as next semester. And I'd like to say this is the first seminar um, that I've been at uh, for this academic year. We had one on um, Tuesday. Uh, Mark Weitzman from the Seaman Wiesenthal Center was here. And he's part of the seminar series entitled uh, Jewish Leadership's Response to the New Antisemitism. And he was the third speaker in that seminar series. Malcolm Holine will be coming in, uh, in about a month or so. And that, that, uh, you should have that with you as well. And he's the president of the Conference of uh, Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. And he'll be speaking um, as well. On Tuesday, Lisa supported and co-sponsored an event um, in Washington, DC, dealing with uh, the problem of incitement to genocide. And it was a conference uh, that took place at the same time that Ahmadinejad was speaking at the United Nations. We had a, a counter-conference, if you will, um, in, in Washington. And it was uh, sponsored by ISA, the Jerusalem Center for Public Policy, which is uh, the head of it is Dory Gold out of Jerusalem, and two uh, academic groups that deal with uh, genocide. It was Genocide Watch and scholars for looking at uh, examining genocide, uh, headed by Yehuda Bauer and other major figures. And uh, at the event, Erwin uh, Kotler from Canada spoke, the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. Richard Holbrook spoke, who's a former uh, Clinton uh, cabinet minister, and he was the US ambassador to the United Nations. He spoke, as well as Dory Gold and others, and uh, including survivors from Rwanda, and from Darfur. So it was a very important uh, event. And I urge you, for those of you who are interested in anti-Semitism, uh, issues of uh, incitement to genocide, I think issues of basic security uh, and, and values of democracy, I urge you to read critically the text of Ahmadinejad and to really see where he's coming from. And I really think that the US media or at least the mainstream media, really misunderstood. or don't, They don't speak the language of Ahmadinejad. And I, I just want to be brief because we have a seminar here, but I think this is of the utmost importance. I think this is the issue of our generation. And we need to understand what's happening. When Ahmadinejad said in Columbia University last year that there were no gay people in, in Iran, the audience laughed because of such an absurd, ridiculous statement. But if you understand where he's coming from, there is no gay people in Iran, and if anybody is openly gay in Iran, they face death. And when Ahmadinejad speaks about Jews and Zionists uh, polluting the world and that sort of thing, read the protocols of the elders of Zion to understand where he's coming from. And it's nothing short of that. And I think that this is an issue that we really need to acquaint ourselves with uh, urgently, unfortunately. Um, on the positive side, this is sort of heavy negative uh, side. On a positive side, I would like to mention some of our postdocs and graduate fellows are here. YISA has now developed, I guess, into the second step of its development, and we've actually become uh, a proper research uh, academic entity. And now we have researchers. We're not just a seminar series um, and doing a few occasional papers, but we're actually 
a research center with researchers. And I would just like to say that uh, Clemens Henny is here. Clemens is um, doing work on issues of anti-Semitism, mostly within the German context. He did a PhD at the University of Innsbruck in Austria and studied at the University of Bremen. Uh, he had fellowships from the German Hans Bockler Foundation, um, and he also worked with the Le Memoir de la Shoah in France, and was a Felix Posman Fellow at Hebrew University's Vidal Sassoon Institute, so it's an honor to have Clemens here. Josh Kaplan, who is not here at the moment, he's at an orientation, a Yale University orientation program. Josh uh, studied at Yale, he did his BA at Yale, and then went on to do a master's and PhD at the University of Chicago. And then he did a law degree at the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva. He was a Lady Davis Fellow in Jerusalem. He had a National Science Foundation Award, and um, he also had a, a, a scholarship from the Council of Advanced Studies in Peace and International Cooperation. And Josh is working on anti-Semitism within the human rights community. It's a very important uh, research. Uh, we have Anat Ploker here. Anat did a BA, a BA and MA at the University of Tel Aviv in history. She went on to do, uh, she's sitting here, she went on to do um, a PhD in history at Stanford University and she specializes in modern Eastern European and Jewish history. Um, and she just joined us as well. Uh, we have Dr. Annette Sidel Arpasi, who um, is also originally from Germany. She went on to do a master's at Leeds University and a PhD in Jewish studies at Leeds. Um, she works on issues of Holocaust memory and migration and notions of otherness. Um, and she worked uh, in the Department of German, Russian, and Slo uh, Slovakian studies at the University of Leeds. So she's here. She's also in the orientation program and also a dynamic uh, scholar. And we have Edith Shalev. Edith is, did a BA in Psychology and Special Education at Tel Aviv University. She then did a Master's of Counseling in Psychology at Tel Aviv University. And then she went on to do a PhD, uh, in which she got distinction, in Research of Emotions at Haifa University. And then she went on to do another PhD in Clinical Psychology at, at Haifa University. And she's worked at the University of Maryland and the University of Florida. We also have Ben Versog, who's here. Ben is a graduate fellow, and um, he also did a BA at uh, Tel Aviv University and a master's uh, at Tel Aviv. Sorry, he did a BA in, in political science and then went on to do a master's of sociology at Tel Aviv University. He then went on to do a master's at Yale uh, in sociology, and he's currently doing, finishing off his PhD here um, at Yale. And his work is on notions of citizenship, and he's comparing Canadian, Israeli, and U.S. notions of uh, citizenship and otherness, and how uh, the relations between uh, being a citizen and not being a citizen. So he's doing interesting work, and it's a pleasure to have him as well. And any day, we're going to have another person join us, Karsima uh, Paul. will be here shortly, depending on her immigration status and obtaining a visa. She's um, from Romania and did a, a B.D. in Sociology and Jewish Studies, as well as a Master's de degree. And she is doing a PhD in history at the University of Babs Boloya, at the University in Romania. Uh, she's looking at anti-Semitism in the Romanian collective imagination uh, in the 20th century. So she's doing cutting-edge research and comes highly recommended, and she should be joining us soon. Um, in about a month, uh, we have the honor also of Dr. Basan Tibi, who, who spoke here in the seminar series. Basan Tibi is now at Cornell. 
and will be coming here for a year, for a, a calendar year, as a senior visiting fellow. And he does fascinating and important work on, um, on Islamic studies, and uh, he's very uh, sort of doing critical analysis of radical Islamicism and how it perverts Islam. And he works uh, and has been working on for decades trying to create notions of integration and cosmopolitanism uh, and creating Muslim notions, models of citizenship which Muslims and Europeans can sort of live and integrate with. So he does very important work and he'll be joining us soon. So we're actually uh, becoming a vibrant space. So those are happy announcements. So uh, now for today's seminar, it's really an honor and a privilege to have Professor Richard Landis here today. Professor Landis will be speaking, the title of his talk is called The Naked Emperor and the First Blood Libel of the 21st Century, The Aldera Affair and the, Dis and the Dysfunctions of the Mainstream Media. Professor Landis is from the Department of History at Boston University. Currently he's an associate professor um, and teaches at the undergraduate and graduate level. He's the founder and the director of the Center for Millennium Studies at Boston University and the coordinator of the Ad, Ad Murray the Corpus Christianorum. What is it? Corpus Christianorum. An Ademar of Shaban. Ademari Kabanensis. Thank you. Explain that later. Previously, he worked at the University of Pittsburgh and was a Mellon postdoc fellow at Columbia University. He has received multiple awards and grants from the Open Society Institute, at the George Soros Foundation, the Society of Fellows at Boston University. Uh, the Boston University Humanities Foundation Seminar Grant, the Olin Foundation Research Fellowship, Princeton University's Graduate Fellowship, and Harvard University's Tower Fellowship to the Ecole Normale Superior. <coughs> He's the author of many books and articles and has been an outspoken critic on exposing some of the virulent anti-Semitism coming out of the Palestinian Authority uh, and notions, connecting notions of anti-Semitism to Israel bashing or anti-Zionism. So it's a privilege to have you here. Thank you very much. Before I start, let me ask you a question. Um, how many people know this? 15 heures, tout vient de basculer près de l'implantation de Netzarim dans la bande de Gaza. Des Palestiniens ont tiré à balles réelles, les Israéliens ripostent, ambulanciers, journalistes et simples passants sont pris entre deux feux. Ici, Jamal et son fils Mohamed sont la cible de tirs venus de la position israélienne. Mohamed a 12 ans, son père tente de le protéger. Il fait des signes, mais une nouvelle rafale. Mohamed est mort et son père gravement blessé. Un policier palestinien et un conducteur d'ambulance ont également perdu la vie au cours de cette bataille. Ok, how many people have seen that footage? Maybe not France 2's version, but some version of it. Ok, now, um, I can, if you'd like, present you the evidence for why I and others think that this is staged. Um, and, but that will, would take about 20 minutes, and uh, what I'm really interested in doing is talking about 
how this image was subsequently used to launch a wave of virulent, not just anti-Zionism, but anti-Semitism in both the Arab and the European slash progressive world. Uh, that's really, I think, what would interest you at, uh, at ESA. But on the other hand, if there are people who want to look at the evidence for why this is staged, I can certainly run you through that. So how many people would like to see the initial presentation on why I think this is staged? All right, so I'll do it quickly. Um, Basically, and you'll excuse me for framing it in this way, but I've been working on this for five years, and uh, i got to say that um, I, there's very little doubt left in my mind that this was staged, so I'm not going to sort of pretend that, you know, people... I'll tell you what people say, but I'm going to frame it. Um, essentially, I see this as an Emperor's New Clothes story, and here's the Dramatis Personae. This is Talal Abu Rahman. He's a Palestinian cameraman, a stringer for both CNN and France 2. He's been working with Charles Andelin since the first Intifada. Um, when Charles Andelin innovated, when the Israelis closed down certain areas in the territories to journalists, uh, Andelin came up with the brilliant idea of giving cameras to Palestinians to go get footage so that the press could sit at the American Colony Hotel and sit drinks while uh, their stringers went and got them footage, and then they would put it together for news broadcasts that evening. Talal was one of these, and I subsequently discovered what that meant. I mean, I knew, but I didn't really. Um, oh, I'm sorry. All right, and then, so Talal is, in my read, the tailor in the Emperor's New Clothes story. He's the one who spins the tale. Uh, and the tale is essentially one where if you accept it, then you are wise, and you are understanding and discerning, and if you don't accept it, then uh, there's something wrong with you. Now, the key player in this is Charles Andelin, who was his boss at France too. Uh, Charles Andelin is probably the longest standing, uh, continuously practicing um, Middle East correspondent in Israel. Most of them cycle through in a matter of years. Charles has been at the desk of France too, which is France's major news, uh, um, uh, news service. I mean, Agence France Presse is a news service, but the major station for news is uh, France 2, and he's been the uh, French, uh, the, the correspondent, Middle East correspondent, for over 20 years now. Uh, he has an enormous amount of influence both in France and in Europe, as well as in Israel. Uh, he's made lots of friends and lots of people defend him because he is their friend. Um, okay, so the courtiers in this case, you have Talal who spins it. You have the Chamberlain who checks it out and comes out and says, it's real. And then you have the media who line up behind this. And this is my example of the media. For those of you who don't recognize him, that's Robert Fisk who in response to the effort of some people in the media to say the boy was caught in a crossfire, said, when I see caught in a crossfire, I know the Israelis have killed another innocent child. Um, so you have the media who all line up with Aldelana, and then you have the crowd that's watching, and this is uh, a study that came out in 2005, uh, well, the last updated 2000, first came out in 2005, 
This was a study of European attitudes towards which is the most dangerous country in the world, and Israel topped the list of negative countries. Uh, and I would argue that this is, in a sense, the product of a public that has been pumped full of what I'll call what I call Pallywood, and I'll go into that in a moment. But have been pumped full of the kinds of images of which Aldura is probably the single most powerful. Now, the clothing in this tale is the murder of Muhammad Aldura. Um, this boy has become a, a, an icon, not just in the Palestinian world, not just in the Arab world, and not just in the Muslim world, but also in the progressive world. I'll show you some examples later. And the emperor who is crowned by all this is Palestinian irredentism. Uh, that is, that the glory of resisting Israeli occupation, the mantle and glory of resisting occupation, comes to those who wrap themselves in the garb of defending somebody like Muhammad al-Dura. Um, and once this story took, once Andelin came out, once all the media lined up, and by the way, Andelin distributed free copies of this to uh, all of his colleagues, which Andelin's middle name is Scoop. And, you know, a writer, a, a journalist who has a scoop like this does not share it. But the reason that he shared it is a little like uh, those of you who remember the now, once again, relevant movie Wall Street, where Gecko plans and executes a run on the market. And that's what Andelin was doing. He distributed this so that other people would show it as well. And then the collective agreement that this happened the way that Andelin said it happened, in a sense, created a kind of inevitability to the story. So, what's the narrative? The first part of the narrative is comes from Andelin when he says the boy is the target of fire coming from the Israeli positions. He's echoing what uh, Talal is telling him. Talal is sending him this footage and saying, "This is what happened. The Israelis fired for 45 minutes at the boy." Uh, after about 25 minutes, they shot him in the stomach, and he lay bleeding for another 20 minutes. So let's listen to a little of what Talal has to say. This first thing is the claim that the Israelis not only fired for 45 minutes, but as he says, bullets like rain. The bullet was like rain. Bullets, I never saw shooting in my life like this. Okay, and that's to the BBC. Um, he also claimed under oath uh, two days later that he had taken about 27 minutes of uh, the boy under fire, of the actual incident, because he's hidden behind the car, he's sheltered, the boy is opposite him, the boy and the father are, uh, are opposite him, he's there with his camera, and he claimed, I took about 27 minutes of this 45 minutes of shooting. He further claimed that the boy and the father were pinned down. The story was they were going to buy a car, and there wasn't a car. And when they came back through that same junction, uh, they were wandering through when all of a sudden the firing started, and they rushed to take cover behind the barrel. So he claimed that the boy and the father, once they took uh, cover behind the barrel, they were pinned and they couldn't get out. That the Israelis targeted the two despite their pleas. That the boy, once shot, bled for 20 minutes because the Israelis shot up any ambulance that tried to come and save him. They kept shooting at him. Believe me, they kept shooting at him. <coughs> the boy was bleeding more than 15 to 20 minutes. When he lay down on his father's lap and looked, he was bleeding from his stomach. The ambulance cannot come or enter to save him. Maybe after 20 minutes from the boy, 
lay down in uh, his father. Okay, uh, he even went so far as to claim that the Israelis had shot an ambulance driver, which, mind you, is really uh, an, almost as much of a violation of the code of um, the rules of the game and the, the code of law to which the Geneva Convention holds uh, nations as uh, shooting a kid. So they shot an ambulance driver. The father was wounded multiple times. The claim from the hospital was that he was shot nine times. The son was shot three times and in fact died of a bullet wound to the stomach. Um, and mind you, one of the things to remember when you think about the footage that we're going to examine is that when you die of a stomach wound, you die of exsanguination, where you're bleeding out. And it's not a small puncture because the picture of the boy in the hospital literally has his guts spilling out. So, and the, and the, the, the ambulance evacuator gave testimony that he had to scoop the guts from the ground and shove them into the boy's stomach before evacuating him. So there should be blood all over the ground. And then the last claim that's of interest to us is Talal, interviewed by Esther Shapira, uh, a German filmmaker, documentary maker working for RAD, um, uh, told her that they had the bullets, that they had recovered the bullets that presumably were Israeli bullets. We have evidence, the gun with the bullet, I filmed it, the gun with the bullet, we pick up the bullets from the wall. Okay, we'll come back to this because she then asks him, further questions. So that's Talal's narrative. Additions by Onderlein. Onderlein insists that Talal is a reliable journalist of the highest professional standards. He also says that there, was, there were scenes that he cut from the footage that Talal gave us. So mind you, until we've actually seen Talal's footage, we're under the impression that A, he has filmed 27 minutes of this agonizing situation including presumably, you know, the blood spilling out on the ground and stuff, that in this 27 minutes, Andelin only showed a small amount, and that the stuff that he cut is, in Andelin's words, too unbearable to show. And, and mind you, I think this played an absolutely critical role in having the Israeli army not willing to pursue this matter, because they were afraid that if they insisted on seeing what was going on, France would publish the whole thing, and it would be a nightmare where all of this stuff that caused so much, you'll see in a moment, so much damage, would be rerun with even more horrifying footage. So uh, this claim that he cut the death agony that was too great for the public to bear uh, is an important claim. Um, and then later, when he got in trouble with this, he said, look, you know, um, I ran this story even though there were some problems with it because it corresponded to the situation on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip at the time. Now, I'm going to show you footage that will indicate that, in fact, the situation on the Gaza Strip was nothing like what was going on on the West Bank. Uh, mind you, what happened is Sharon visits the Temple Mount on the 28th. On the 29th, there are serious riots. Uh, there are, I think, a half a dozen uh, Palestinians killed in riots on the 29th, uh, dozens injured, and so on. But, um, and then the next day, supposedly, uh, the, the flames spread to Gaza. But what you'll see is a very different situation. And then finally, when I first went to Charles Ondelin's office to view the footage uh, on October 31st, 2003, an appropriate day to visit him, he drew me this map of the intersection. So here is the, um, let's call it the uh, northwest, southeast, no, northeast, southwest road 
that runs along Gaza. This is the crossroads leading in this direction to the settlement at Nitzarim. This is the way to Israel. And um, what he's saying is, look, this is the intersection. This is the Palestinian position police station. They're firing at the Israelis. This is the Israeli station. They're firing back. And they're also firing. Here's Here's the boy behind the barrel, the father and son behind the barrel, and here is Talal behind the car filming it. So that was his sketch for me of what was going on. Okay, now, let's look at the evidence rather than the narrative. In other words, not what people are telling us, whether it's Ondeolan or Talal, and I haven't even gone into what the father says, but let's look at the evidence. And what we have is, here's the boy behind the barrel. Here's the Palestinian position, and here's the Israeli position over here in blue. So he's literally, Ondelan has moved the Israeli position over to the other side of the road. It's recessed back from a caddy corner angle, and he's moved it over to the other side of the road, and in fact, he's moved it more or less to the position that we have evidence Palestinian gunmen were occupying at this place called the Pita, which is a sort of round, uh, mound of dirt. And so we have evidence that the Palestinians were there with gunmen and so on and so forth. And you'll see in a minute why that's significant. And then over here we have Talal Abu Rahma uh, behind a car taking a picture of Mohammed al Dura across the way. And here's the Israeli angle. Now, of the evidence, the narrative evidence, none is supported. There are no 27 minutes of footage that Talal took. He only took 60 seconds of a 45-minute incident. Only 60 seconds of a 45-minute incident, which means that 1 45th of the time that it was happening, he was not filming anything. Why? He, he says he was running out of batteries. I'm not going to go into the details, but that's not a believable argument. The second thing is that there are three cases where we can actually identify bullets hitting in the area around Aldura. And this is the first one. And what you see here is the line of fire indicated by the, the dust that this bullet kicked up as it hit the ground. And the fact is that this line of fire goes to the pita. The Israeli position is up here. This would be the angle of fire if this bullet were coming from the Israeli position. I think. Why is this happening to me? All right. Um, so these are so that's the first Palestinian bullet. Now here we're going to see. Oh, you see right here. This is a picture of an Israeli bullet hitting the wall. This is the first frame of the Israeli an Israeli bullet hitting the wall. Okay, so you can see that the bullet kicks off dust in the opposite direction. All right. Now, this is the first shot. This is the opening sequence of the Aldura affair. You can see there's a bullet hitting the wall above their heads right there. And it's not a, uh, um, given the angle, it's not flying off to the left. In fact, it's a perfectly circular dust uh, uh, a cloud that's kicked up by a bullet hitting the wall head on. This is a picture of the bullets. This is the next day, a picture of the wall. 
Um, none of these large holes are even there during the Aldura sequence. Uh, this hole isn't there, this hole isn't there. The ones that we can see all of these holes are bullets that are entering the wall straight on and not from the Israeli position. All right, next issue is artwood with the boy and the father hidden behind the barrel. Um, did they take refuge behind the barrel when the firing came? Well, here they are behind the barrel. You can see them. Uh, and this is at least three or four minutes before the firing starts. There's a large number of people here, and there's a large number of people behind the leaf here. We'll take a look at them in a moment. So they were, they were present before the firing. Subsequently, once the firing starts, we actually have a cameraman, and then another man who comes and takes a position behind this cameraman, not protected by the barrel, who were there during the sequence where they're supposed to be um, under fire. So again, we have this sort of strange, here's a, here's a diagrammatic picture of the cameraman and the, and the uh, sound man who's behind him, and the tripod. Here's the father and son behind the barrel. This is a reconstruction of the view from the Israeli position. So if the father and son have taken refuge behind the barrel because there's 45 minutes of terrible firing, then I would say, what are these cameramen doing there? We'll see in a minute why. Um, All right, so they're not pinned, those are the three. And this is, it will give you an idea of why not. Now this is, this is what I call evidence of Pallywood. Um, I'll go into Pallywood in a moment, but it's basically the staging of uh, scenes of combat. And so here what you're going to see is, uh, you're going to see two men who know the story. These two guys here know perfectly well that the firing we're hearing does not come from the Israeli position. This is incidentally taken by that cameraman who's right behind Mohammed al-Dura and his father. Right? So you hear this firing, and these guys are just standing. I'll run it for you again. Watch these two guys and listen to the firing. These two guys here, and listen to the firing. And you'll see that, oops, they have no problem with this. Oh no, tell me it's not. Give me trouble. Give it one last try. There's no evidence of blood. Here is Jamal in the last scene, or the last scene that Odela shows. Uh, Talal has already, I mean, his son is already supposedly dead. He himself has supposedly been badly injured. He's wearing a dolphin's t-shirt. There's not a trace of blood anywhere on him. On Muhammad, this is the trace of blood on Muhammad. In one scene, we see it on his thigh. In another scene, it's gone from his thigh. It's around his stomach. The thigh is completely clean, although there's a claim that he was hit by a bullet in the thigh. And if you look closely here, and this appeared in the French court case really clearly, this is not red blood on his leg. This is a red rag that he is holding. And then, oops. Sorry. Um, 
And then last but not least, this is a picture taken of the barrel the next day. Okay, so for one thing, there's no reason why that blood should be red. I think this is the red rag that uh, the boy was holding. There is no reason why this blood should be red. It's already 24 hours after it's been spilled. It should be brown. And there's no reason why this blood should be only here, which is where the father was sitting. And here's where the boy was lying, bleeding, as Talal said, for 20 minutes on the ground. And there's not a trace of blood there. So uh, this is, for me, a major piece of evidence that this blood was put in the next day to cover for the bizarreness of it all. And then this is, I think, this is the scene that Charles Aldelin cut. This is the scene that Charles Aldelin claimed was the death rows of the boy, which were so terrible that he couldn't show it. Now here, I mean, there are a number of inconsistencies here. If you remember in the previous scene, uh, Muhammad was facing us. He was full front showing his dolphin's t-shirt with no sign of blood. In this scene, he's now moved. So that he's facing away from the child. And actually, for me, this is one of the dead giveaways that this is staged, is the father never reaches for his son. I mean, even the fact that the son is behind him instead of in front of him, closer to the barrel, is problematic. The fact is, once the boy is hit, the father never reaches for the son at all. He, in fact, turns away. So here he is turned away. And here, the boy is also in a strange position. The boy is supposed to be dying of a, blood, uh, of a, of a stomach wound. Now, normally, if somebody hit in the stomach is in a fetal position clutching his stomach. Instead, he's stretched out, and his hand that should be clutching his stomach and was in the opening scene is now over his eyes and covering his eyes. And what you're going to see is that he's going to slowly lift up his elbow and look out, in fact, look at the camera, or in my interpretation, look at the camera, and then slowly bring his elbow back down, and you'll see his feet behind him actually rise up and counterbalance. These are deliberate actions. They are miles away from what a um, death row would look like, and Charles Aldelin has already declared this boy dead two scenes earlier. Sorry. So this is the scene that he cut. There goes the elbow up. Now it slowly goes down, and the feet rise behind. And I think Aldelin cut this not because it was unbearable to the audience, because it was unbearable to his narrative. Now. Here's an example of how it did. This boy just handed off a Molotov cocktail, I think. Uh, you'll see him running. He shows no sign of injury. But you'll notice that there's red on his forehead. He's going to enter a, a, a crowd where he will become a victim of war. So there's the red on his forehead. Now he's in the crowd. Now his legs have been picked up. They're calling the ambulance. The cameramen come. And here is this kid, you'll notice that even though he's supposed to be injured in the head, he's holding his head up high. And they're yelling, Allahu Akbar, this guy in the back is smiling. And now, the really interesting part is, he was allegedly shot by the Israelis. They're just running back in front of the Israeli position. You can see the Israeli flag here. Okay? So they're running back in front of the Israeli position, where they put him in an ambulance with no fear whatsoever of the Israelis. And that's one of the most striking aspects of the uh, footage is uh, the degree to which this kind of stuff goes on all the time. Now, Talal's footage also shows the same kind of faking. This boy here, um, we don't see any blood, but there's something wrong with his arm. Now, he does not need to be picked up and thrown into an ambulance um, in order to save his life. But that's exactly what's going to happen. So here we have him. It looks like he may have been hurt on his hand. It's not clear. 
He's looking to see what's going on. Now he enters this crowd, and this guy over here sees another ambulance, puts a headlock on him, grabs him, and now they're lifting him up to put him in the ambulance and literally choking the guy. Now anybody who, you know, one of the signs of Hollywood is the evacuations are unbelievably rough. If these people were really injured, if they were seriously injured, they'd be killed by these kinds of evacuations. Nobody uses stretchers. It's all grab the person, run them past the cameras, and throw them into the ambulance. Um, and then last but not least, as I showed you, all Delain's evidence, and this is really striking because all Delain loves to say, who does Philippe Casanti and Richard Landis think they are criticizing me? I know Netzarim Junction. They've never even been there. All right, so if he, and he said, I went back shortly after this incident to verify. So if he went back shortly after this incident to verify and can draw me that map, either he's really lost, I mean, he's, he's, he's you know, we got problems with uh, maybe attention deficit disorder or something, or he's openly lying to me. And I gather that he drew this map for a number of people, not just for me. Okay, so we got all Delain's evidence, other evidence. There's no evidence of an ambulance driver who shot. There's no ambulance evidence of an ambulance that shot up. That wouldn't be hard to supply. The father's wounds, it turns out, the ones that he has in the hospital on his right hand and on his thigh, were from a hatchet attack by Hamas in 1993, which was treated in an Israeli hospital. And we now have the doctor who treated him. And so just they, they put the wounds over the site of earlier scars. Uh, and then my favorite, there's no autopsy on the son, of course. And this is my favorite. We have Talal. If you remember, he said, we have the bullets. We know, we, we know what kind of bullets we know. Um, and I filmed the bullets. And then Esther Shapira says, well, what kind were they? What it, it was it? What would you say? How long was it? I don't know. You, 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 the one from the general, you continue. Okay, so he says, you interviewed one from the general, meaning the general who was supposed to do the investigation. Meantime, she already interviewed the general, and the general said, we didn't do an investigation. We don't have any bullets. We don't do an investigation when we know who did it. And she said, well, who did it? He says, the Israelis. Okay, so, so she tells him, but wait a minute, the general doesn't have the bullets. France too collected. Now, he's France too. He's the, he is the head man from France too at Gaza at that time. France too collected, which is an absurd claim. And he realizes it's an absurd claim, and this is what he does. So you're doing a better investigation job? No, 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 we, 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 we have some secrets, you know, for, for, for our sake. We cannot give anything. Just everything. Okay, that's our tailor. Okay, there's extensive evidence for tailing, for staging the boy still alive, picking up his elbow at the end. The father never touches the son or tries to protect him once he's hit. Here's the father. Mind you, this is scene five. This is the last scene on the show. show. Um, and again, um, you know, he's supposed to be badly wounded, but there is absolutely no sign of wound. Now, here's an even more interesting aspect. Um, this is while the boy is still alive. You're going to hear people around Aldelana, uh, around Talal Abu Rahmish, shouting, the boy is dead, the boy is dead in Arabic as if you were already shot. I mean, this is sort of, they're part of the crowd that's supposed to yell this, but they're jumping the gun. 
Metawala. So what's interesting is this is Israeli footage. They've actually translated for you Hayeled Meit, which means that they're aware of what they're saying, but no, there is no Israeli journalist who question this footage, who question the inconsistencies in this footage. Um, and then uh, the last point is um, this footage, I mean, Talal is there for 45 minutes, allegedly taking 27 minutes, only gets 60 seconds. And in fact, even that 60 seconds is broken down into six different takes of about 10 seconds each. Here's the first where the boy is hit. He's holding his stomach. You saw it earlier with the red rag on his knee. Now, uh, the boy has changed positions. This is the scene where, actually, the previous scene is where Ondelan said he's dead. Here you see him fully face forward, but not reaching for the boy. And now you see him facing away from the boy, so he's certainly capable of moving. Um, and the boy, again, has changed his position. And here you can see him, his face looking out and his elbow up. So, no blood, no bullets, no scenes of ambulance evacuation. You have to understand for the Palestinian cameraman there, a scene of an ambulance evacuation, that's their bread and butter. That's what they're waiting for. That's why they're staging them, because that's what they want to send out. So to have this kid shot at for 45 minutes, there were a dozen cameramen there at Netzarim Junction that day. To have this kid shot at for 40 minutes, bleeding for 20, an ambulance shot up, another ambulance coming and evacuating the son and father, and nobody gets it on tape is literally, I would say, the dog who didn't bark. Um, none of the dozen other cameramen took shots of the events, and the father's wounds come from the hospital. Okay, um, I'll be willing to take questions on this if you would like later, but what I'd really like to do now is to go into how this footage impacted the scene. Uh, hold on, I'm going to have to do this this way. Okay, so you've seen the news report, I don't have to do it again. The immediate impact of this footage was to trigger riots in Israel. The first riots amongst Israel, amongst Israeli Arabs or, or Arabs in what is Israel, the Green Line, beyond the Green Line, um, or this, the Israeli side of the Green Line, since the creation of the state. I mean, there were riots earlier, obviously, uh, during the British Mandate and during the Turkish uh, uh, rule, but uh, since Israel there have been no riots by Israeli Arabs and there were ferocious riots in which I believe seven uh, Arabs were actually killed by Israeli policemen. Um, they happened in many Arab places, Natsevet, Yafo, Umm al-Fahm, Farkana, Tiberias, uh, really a, a lot of places. This was really shocking. Everybody, in a sense, couldn't believe it. And as Graham Usher, a British journalist, put it, the uprising wipes out the Green Line. And I think that's important to understand because that's exactly how I believe the Palestinians viewed the onset of the Second Intifada, that this was going to sweep Israel away, that just as the Lebanese had managed to chase Israel out, they were going to manage to chase Israel out of their territory. It led to rioting uh, on the Palestinian side. One of the first things to go was Joseph's tomb, which was burned the next day. 
Um, this was the only holy site that the Israelis had left in Palestinian uh, control during the Oslo process. And as soon as this picture appeared, it went. We have snipers and stones. I'll grant you that this picture is from about six months later. But this uh, child was literally targeted by a sniper. Uh, it also led to attacks on Jews in Europe. For instance, a friend of mine is a Belgian. He said that the day after the attacks, so we're talking about Rosh Hashanah, uh, second day of Rosh Hashanah, uh, his rabbi is going to Shul and is attacked by Muslim kids, throwing stones at him over this incident he didn't even know had happened. Um, and it led to a dramatic diplomatic turnaround. Up until this point, Yasser Arafat was blamed for the um, uh, failure of Camp David, given what both the Ross, Dennis Ross and, uh, and uh, Bill Clinton had said and Barack had said, um, Israel was given a good deal of credit for making concessions to the Palestinians and uh, Arafat was under a cloud for having, in fact, uh, turned down Camp David. Uh, with this, this is October 4th, um, not only does uh, Chirac greet Arafat with open arms, but he publicly disses uh, Ehud Barak in addition to saying openly and publicly that killing children is not a policy. Um, so this, this second picture is just a, my joke. It's not actually anything specifically related to the incident, but like Charles Andelin says, it, it corresponds to the situation. This is what Chirac was saying to Barak. So uh, the diplomatic turnaround, it led to a tremendous media feeding frenzy, and it, not just in the Arab world, for Al Jazeera, it was huge, uh, I'll come back to that in a moment, but also in the West. Um, this, this became, you know, there were story after story, people going to Gaza, interviewing the mother, interviewing the father, telling the sob story, and nobody asking a critical question. Uh, the Israeli reaction was problematic. Uh, their reaction was basically to say, we may have killed this boy, and if we did, we're sorry. Which is a little like, um, well, let me put it this way, it was immediately taken by everybody to be evidence the Israelis had done it. Uh, and I'll come back to that if you want later. And essentially, the Oslo process, after this, the Oslo process collapsed, and I think one of the key elements of that collapse is if you talk to Israelis who were involved in dialogues with Palestinians during the Oslo process, I was there when Oslo started on a sabbatical and I was involved in some of those dialogues, I was not very sanguine about them going anywhere, but I had friends who continued to persist throughout this period and talked with Palestinian moderates and so on and so forth. After this incident, they would call up to apologize and they'd say, I can't talk to you. It was, it, the, 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 the dialogue was over. Any Palestinian who was still talking to an Israeli after this incident was considered a traitor. Now, the long-term impact on the Palestinians, I think, was devastating. The Palestinian culture has suffered enormously. They've suffered enormously for a long time, and you can date the sort of downturn, the current downturn, to uh, Arafat's arrival in 993, but uh, I would say even more to this. The first thing the Palestinians did, and it took them two or three days, was to doctor the footage. Uh, actually, let me just show you one thing here. I have some pictures of the rioting in Nazareth. Um, this is the rioting that was caused by Al-Dur. You see that? Okay, that, that fellow there 
who's actually firing rubber bullets at rioters set off by the image of Al-Dura. This is what the Palestinian Authority did with that, just to make in sure. The eyes of millions. He is seeking That's protection in the arms of his father, but he is hit Just to make sure that you know the Israelis did it on purpose in cold blood, as Talal said. They actually edited the footage and took that uh, image from a subsequent day and inserted it to make sure that people saw this. Um, Muhammad was turned into a martyr. This is, uh, this is their version of MTV. <laughs> This is a hit song. This is one of the most popular singers in Palestine. Okay, and so he is he is shown on Palestinian TV repeatedly either saying follow me to other kids or um, being used to, to show how terrible the Israelis are. And one Israeli analyst of the scene, Eran Lehman, actually coined the term Muhammad al-Dura per hour, M-D-P-H. Um, you could tell the level of violence the next day by how many times the Muhammad al-Dura footage was run on Palestinian TV. Now, 12 days after this, there was the famous lynching of uh, the two reservists who ended up in Ramallah, were taken under in custody uh, to the police station, and then when the Palestinians found out about this, the, the inhabitants of the town, they went in, tore these, beat these people to death, literally tore their bodies apart, and dragged the parts through the street. This is the famous picture of the guy who was part of the people who killed him, pummeled him to death, showing his bloody hands in the window to an adoring crowd. I'll come back to that image in a sec, but the important thing to understand is that while they were doing this, they were yelling, revenge for the blood of Muhammad Abdurrah. And a pro-Palestinian journalist named Mark Seeger, a photographer who was there at the time, said, uh, he wrote an article called, uh, um, I'll have nightmares for the rest of my life. I've been in touch with him since he got over it. He's still pro-Palestinian. Um, but he said, I've never seen hate like this. I've been all over the world. I've seen terrible situations. Never saw such savage hatred as I did in uh, the Palestinian, in the response. Another thing that happens is, uh, I was in Israel back in 94, 95 when the suicide bombings first started. They were all Hamas, uh, they were part of a Hamas, um, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, a Hamas uh, culture that was apocalyptic. That's a topic we can bring up again if you want with questions and answers, but by and large they did not have the support of the Palestinian public. There were few of them. Uh, each time they happened, they were viewed badly uh, by 75% of Palestinians, which is actually pathetically low uh, number of people to object to something as vicious as suicide bombing. But after the Al-Dura incident, we have a wave that goes on for two or three years. Here's where the wall is, starts to be built. Um, um, Jenin was 2002. Uh, we have a, an escalation of suicide bombing and up to 80% approval in the Palestinian territories. And I think that Basically, the attitude was, if they kill our kids, why shouldn't we kill their kids? Um, and essentially, this led to the brutalizing of Palestinian culture. 
here's a scene of celebrating. This happens to be the Merkaz Harav uh, uh, celebration. But there were celebrating. Every time the suicide bomb went off, Palestinians were in the street celebrating this wondrous attack upon the Zionist enemy. It went further. You actually had what I call a schadenfreude exhibit. Uh, Palestinians could go to a recreation of the Sbarro pizza bombing in which they could see paper mache parts of bodies dripping with blood hanging from the wall so that they could sort of savor the moment of impact. Um, when this became public, it was shut down. And teaching children, this is a graduation ceremony. Okay, the, same, the same footage of the guy holding his hands, which the Palestinians beat up people like Mark Seeger and so on, from, to avoid them taking, they smashed his camera, they confiscated the footage. They didn't want the world to see it. Nonetheless, they're not ashamed of it within their own culture. In fact, they think it's admirable behavior which they should teach to their youngest children. And then, the day after Muhammad al the, the day after the, the, the Ramallah lynching, a preacher got on, uh, got up in the mosque and was uh, shown on Palestinian Okay, I call that genocidal media. All right, the long-term impact on Muslims, I think, was really very powerful. I think that this is, this is an image that traveled through the entire Muslim world. It made it to places that were not Arab but Muslim, like Pakistan, where, among other things, we have Daniel Pearl's execution uh, using this footage. Uh, here's Daniel Pearl, and here's Muhammad al-Dura, and here's Daniel Pearl. Um, it was used by Bin Laden in a recruiting video. Okay, that uh, incidentally came out before 9-11, so it came out literally months after the Al-Dura incident, and it's a sort of key element in a call to global jihad, which he sent out. Um, Jews kidnapped a non-Jewish boy during the feast of Passover. They slit his throat to drink his blood. Okay, so here's the blood libel that's been actually folded into the story of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it turns out to be a sort of movie series, a little like Roots or something, enormously popular, run at Ramadan. There was one done in Syria, there was one done in Egypt. The blood libel flourishes in the wake of this incident. Um, what I would argue, in fact, is that Muhammad al-Dura was sort of a wake-up call to the Muslim world. If you read anything before 2000 about uh, Islam as a religion, one of the things that the scholar describing it will discuss is the essential passivity and fatalism 
of Muslims, inshallah. Where, where it's God's will, whatever happens, that's what God wants it to be. And modernization experts who were talking about why isn't the Arab world using all this petrodollars to modernize uh, runs across this attitude of fatalism. After 2000, inshallah gives way to Allahu Akbar. I think that, that Aldura is not the only thing, but I think Aldura played a key role in sort of waking people up to this paranoid call on the part of people like uh, bin Laden and others that the West is out to destroy Islam and Israel, the little Satan, is doing the work of America, the great Satan. So uh, Arab Street takes root in, uh, uh, in Europe. This is an interesting phenomenon. There are some rowdy demonstrations by, Palestine, by uh, Muslim immigrants in Europe before, but after 2000, after these, and as a result of these, you have a wide range of public demonstrations that are really violent in which Jewish groups get beat up. Uh, in 2003, the anti-war demonstrations in Paris, I was there at the time, a Palestinian group passed a Hashomer uh, Sayer youth group. They beat them with metal pipes. The, uh, there were um, photographers who took pictures of this and French media refused to show them and the demonstrators, the progressive demonstrators, refused to intervene and stop the Palestinians from beating up on the uh, Israelis. I'm not going to show you footage of the attacks, but I do want to show you a picture of the new assertiveness. This would be unthinkable in the 1990s and yet here we are, 2005, uh, in response to the Danish cartoon scandal. This is a demonstration outside the Danish embassy in London. Now, you would not have Muslims in Europe saying this before 2000. Not that they weren't saying it, you just wouldn't have them demonstrating in public. Okay. Uh, the Western world. Really, throughout the world, this image led to demonstrations immediately. You have them all over the Muslim world. You have them in South Africa, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, Brussels, Indonesia, London, France, another France, Italy, Netherlands, New York, New York, Madrid, Miami, and Paris, and I'll come back to this image in a moment, okay? You have it hitting the media, you have um, cartoons, and I'm just going to give you one example. This is the Hartford Current, okay? The barrel is gone, you don't even need the Israeli soldier shooting. Here's Ariel Sharon gunning this poor innocent group down. And this is a more or less a mainstream journal in the United States. The cartoons in Europe were far more vicious. Um, and you have, essentially, the marriage of anti-Zionism and the left. This is a demonstration, an anti-war demonstration in San Francisco. Um, and here you have this demonic figure, which is Nazi, American, and Israeli. There is an Israeli, evil-looking Israeli, two Israelis with, uh, um, uh, two Jews with Israeli kippahs in the background. And stop the war pigs, Zionist pigs. So you've got... I got five minutes, okay. So you've got essentially a kind of uh, um, disastrous marriage between the left and the um, essentially jihadis. 
Here, I think, is probably the most important symbolic image of the Aldura affair. You've got a star of David equals a swastika equals, this is the boy and the father behind the barrel, and in French it says, they kill children too. And for me, what, what this story did for Europe was to, it, it made it possible to make the comparison between Israelis and Nazis. That it made it legitimate, it made it a mainstream uh, comparison. Now, I, I personally think that the comparison is moral sadism of the highest order um, and had previously been only marginal to the most extreme uh, levels of the left, but no, instead. Here's Pierre-André Taguieff's latest book, uh, The Preachers of Hatred. Uh, he's the one in France who has most chronicled this. This is, um, this is Durban. There's Mohamed al-Dura behind uh, with his father. And it says, uh, Israel's images of hatred. Down here, you have actually Muhammad al-Dura being carried in effigy. Muhammad al-Dura is the patron saint of Durban I. His father was brought there on Arafat's jet. His father told the story of how the Israelis were so terrible to him and, and his son, and so on. And I think a lot of the NGOs who signed the anti-Israel thing did it under the powerful impression that this was what was going on. Um, and I'll give you one more image just to show you the... Catherine Ney, who is a French journalist of uh, some standing, I mean, she's written books on the political process, she's one of the major French journalists, said, this death erases, replaces the picture of the boy from the Warsaw Ghetto. And to illustrate it, you have a, a picture that I took from Ramsey Clark's website at International Answer. So, for, for, for some reason, uh, you, you can call it Mohamed al-Dura derangement syndrome. Somehow these people seem to think that the at most accidental death of a child, possibly very probably staged death of a child, but they think it's the death of one child somehow erases the image of six million people deliberately murdered by the Nazis. Have you seen this? All right. Uh, Western world. The Zionist response is very weak. I won't go into that. Um, I consider this... I call it the bloodless libel because there is no blood. But um, it's, it's essentially a modern blood libel. Now, the ancient, the medieval blood libels that I studied as a medievalist uh, are essentially things done in secret because the Jews are people without weapons, without arms. So in the modern condition, it's different. But the basic element of any blood libel is a Jew kills a, an innocent Gentile boy, and all Jews everywhere are responsible for it, and this thing is essentially an indication of what Jewish intentions towards Gentiles are really about. And so Osama bin Laden says, in killing this child, the Jews killed every child in the world. So, but the modern version, of course, since the Israelis are now armed, is something that takes place in public before the camera. It leads to the same kinds of things that medieval blood libels led to. In the Arab world, it leads to pogroms. In Europe, it leads to sort of minor pogroms. It leads to enormous paranoia and more blood libels being spread through the media in the Arab and Muslim world. It leads the mainstream media in the West to believe anything that the Palestinians claim from the blood of the body count at Jenin, you know, the 500 massacred by the Israelis, to uh, the idea that the master 9-11 was masterminded by the Jews. And for me, the really telling moment, and this was before I really discovered Mohammed al-Dura in 2002, at the time of Jenin, the Israelis were saying, look, 
we only, you know, there are only 50, I think, 59 dead or, or 52 dead, uh, and most of those were gunmen and so on. And Kofi Annan, who's been hearing everybody say it's 500, it's 5,000, said, can the whole world be wrong and Israel be right? Now, what's ironic about that is that Achad Ha'am, in an 1892 essay on the blood libel, which at the time was traversing Eastern Europe, wrote, what we hear people say when we deny it's the blood libel is, can the whole world be wrong and the Jews be right? So it's exactly, and that is why I consider this, in some senses, the emperor's new clothes. You've got a consensus of people saying, this is what happened, they are wrong. Can the whole world be wrong? And this little boy be right? Well, I think so. And here is my illustration of, it's a, it, it, I call it a bloodless libel, and the Palestinians have to supply the blood. Uh, I'm going to stop there. I have lots of other things to say, but uh, I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, any questions? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's a line there. Jihad left the lines. If you give us a couple of seconds on that. Well, I think the key moment was the anti-Iraq war, anti-American demonstrations. That's when the left, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Michael Lerner, who's not my favorite person, but actually a, a friend of a fairly long standing, uh, was refused the um, uh, was refused uh, being allowed to speak at the demonstration in San Francisco because he was too Zionist. And yet, at the same demonstrations, they had jihadis yelling Allahu Akbar from the stage, including in Washington, D.C. So, uh, and Nick Cohen, uh, for those of you who are interested, you have to read a book by Nick Cohen called What's Left. But uh, he went to those demonstrations in 2003, was appalled by what he saw. It wasn't an anti-war demonstration, it was an anti-American demonstration, it was actually a war demonstration. And since Nick Cohen, who was a good leftist, had been and a red diaper baby had been working with Iraqi dissidents against Saddam Hussein. He was stunned to find out that there were pictures of Saddam Hussein at these rallies, as well as pictures of Yasser Arafat and so on and so forth. Now, um, my specialty as a medievalist, in addition to working on apocalyptic movements, is also working on a movement called the Peace of God, which I consider to be one of the first uh, really productive millennial movements in Europe. Um, and so somebody wrote me an email and said, you know, this is the biggest peace movement in the history of, uh, of mankind. Look, there are millions of people all over the world protesting American warmongering. And I'm thinking, you know, this is more like the Crusades, which incidentally were also preached as a peace of God. Uh, this is much more like the Crusades, but it's not the Crusades. It's not even like they're on the side of the West. They're on the side of the enemies of the West. So it's a stunning phenomenon that's only gotten worse. But it actually, it's not 2003. Already in Durban, you have this alliance. Yeah. Did you mention the recent court case? French court. Yeah. Well, there's, yeah. There's really Which interesting. that it was a fabrication. Right. There, well, the, the court didn't say it was a fabrication. The court said that Philippe Casanti, who said it was a fabrication, had every right to say that. Now, the fact that uh, the court viewed all the evidence, including the raw footage, which 
was the first time many people had seen it. I saw it earlier, but many people had not seen it. Most people had not seen it. The fact that the court viewed the footage, that they heard Charles Andelin, that Philippe Cassanti showed, documented Charles Andelin cheating, uh, showing fake footage on his, uh, on his uh, screen, uh, to his viewers in his news reports and stuff, and that Andelin really had no answers to the court, meant that the court's decision saying that not only did Philippe Cassanti have a right to state these criticisms, but that in fact he had a right to state them in as vigorous language as he wanted, was tremendous blow to Charles Andelin. So that was, that was a great moment of victory. Now within a week, there was a petition up in support of Charles Andelin saying, oh, you know, this is really, this court decision is shocking because um, it, it, it disturbs and worries us. It disturbs us because they gave the same credibility to Philippe Cassanti as to a seasoned veteran of journalism like Charles Andelin. And so I've now added guild mentality to the list of medieval phenomena that I study in the modern world because it was a stunning piece of what the French call corporatisme. Uh, the, the idea that Charles Andelin, because he's a journalist, should be more trusted than a citizen, and who does this citizen, who is this citizen to criticize a journalist like this? And then the second thing is that it's really disturbing because it's, it's going to be chilling on the freedom of the press. And what do they mean by that? It means that when individual citizens have the right to criticize journalists, journalists are not going to be free to say whatever they want. So it was really, it was a stunning uh, piece, and there was a, a woman who did a great job. She knew a lot of these people. She called them up and said, you know, have you seen the evidence? No. So why did you sign? Charles is a friend. Uh, and, and it was really sort of, you know, one guy said, uh, one guy, not just any guy, he was a, a major journalist for the Washington Post, who said, um, look, Charles, you know, if Charles told me it was the virgin birth, I'd believe him. He's a good journalist. You know, so it's like journalists can't err. And so, okay, so that happened, but then, interestingly enough, there were two people who came to the defense of Cassanti or to the attack against this, this petition. One was Elie Barnaby, who was the ambassador to France from 2001 to, uh, I think, 2004 or something. And Barnaby said, look, I've seen this stuff, and Charles Andelin is, no, you should not be defending Charles Andelin, and certainly not without seeing the, the footage. And Alain Finkelkraut, whom we had been begging to get involved in this from the beginning and you know, kept his distance, finally came out and said, no, you know, in this case, I think Charles Andelin has a lot to answer for. And at that point, Jean Daniel, who was the editor of the Nouvelle Ops, and who, that, that's where the petition came out, uh, actually changed his position and said, I'm in favor of a uh, commission investigation. And then just a week ago, uh, France, too, has finally agreed to a commission of investigation, which will get going in November, and they have committed to, if the investigative committee agrees that this was staged, they will fire everybody in the Jerusalem Bureau. So that would be fabulous. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, um, do you see any, any trend any reason that would change this complete commitment of the mainstream media yeah. to a certain narrative and its embrace by so many people? Okay, uh, yes, but it's not clear sailing. I mean, it's not a straight line. It's going to be a bumpy path. But I do think that, um, first of all, just the fact that at this point it is more or less widely accepted in at least the media that's willing to discuss it 
that this scene was staged. And you get, you know, people, you talk to people in France and they'll say, oh yeah, you know, Charles really blew this, but he's too proud to admit it. And so, you know, and then I say, so uh, why aren't you criticized? Well, he's a friend, he's about to retire, you know, it would be, you know, it's sort of like you catch the A student cheating on an exam and he's done so well till now, that's not, the fact that he's been cheating all along doesn't occur to you. But um, I think that we are now, uh, let me put it this way, the rest of my presentation was going to argue that the dysfunctions of the mainstream media, the reason why they misread this so badly and the reason why they refused to reconsider or even cover the trial and the reconsideration, actually has a devastating effect on the West because essentially what, what the French did, and the French showed this image almost as much as the Arabs did on their TVs day after day, week after week. Um, what they were doing was waving the flag of global jihad in front of their Muslim population. They thought that they were turning them against Israel, and they thought, they're not going to be against us. Look, we're on their side. They're against Israel. And they misread it systematically. They thought that the, uh, the Antifada was a nationalist uprising against Israel, when in fact it was a jihad. And they were the targets as much. So here they are thinking, first of all, bathing in what I call the moral schadenfreude of being able to say, look at the Israelis, they're behaving like Nazis. And at the same time, you know, running this red flag of violent intifada in front of their own Muslim population. Eight years into this, I think we have a much more sober Europe. I mean, if you talk to Melanie Phillips, who's coming here, I see, in a couple of months, Melanie Phillips will tell you that the, 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 what, what we medievalists call the commoners in England are furious and terrified at the threat that, that uh, jihadi Islam represents. Um, but the elites, the, the media elites, the academic elites, the political elites, even the security elites are refusing to acknowledge this. Now, that, for a historian, we look at that situation and we say, at some point this is going to break. At some point you're going to have a voice that's been kept down as Jim Scott, who teaches here, James Scott, uh, did a brilliant book called The Domination and the Arts of Resistance, and he talked about public transcripts and private transcripts. And, and the key thing is, when does a private transcript get public? And the fact is that throughout Europe, you have um, citizens who are saying, what's going on with these Muslims who are moving to our neighborhoods and acting like thugs and taking over like street corner society, like street gangs and stuff, and they're told, shut up, you're racists. Well, for a while that works, but at some point you can't keep this down, and when it does come out, it's going to be something. Now, my feeling is that our job, as people who see what's going on, is to prepare materials for people as they wake up. So, A, they wake up as quickly as possible, and B, they wake up as intelligently as possible. Because if they wait too long, they're going to wake up and either say, hey, we're like Romans who have slid our wrists in a tub and we're just letting the, the blood flow until we're dead, or they're going to go fascist and get, uh, to quote uh, a movie, they're going to get medieval on the Muslims ass in Europe. And that's not what we need or want. I still think that not only is the vast majority of Europe not interested in Sharia, but even, I think, a significant number of Muslims in Europe, and certainly the women, don't want to see Sharia come in. So, you know, you've got to mobilize this stuff, but we're not mobilizing it. In fact, the, the elites in Europe were, in fact, mobilizing precisely the wrong forces, and the media plays a key role in this. And then we have Joel, and then we have Vic. Can you ask the questions? Maybe we'll collect three questions very quickly. We have about 10 minutes left. 
Okay. Uh, first, uh, I, I really want to thank you for the lecture. It was really fascinating. I, I think that uh, your, you know, your prediction is too optimistic because um, in terms of psychological processes that you, you didn't mention in psychological um, terms, but basically the creation of narrative or a rumor and then automatic judgment as opposed to strategic judgment and then the psychology of the crowd. So all processes lead to, you know, it, it will become worse and worse. And I don't see any way for this to, you know, to eventually um, be proceed uh, positively because that's human nature. So question is, I mean, that's hey, uh, hey, impossible hey, question nature. Is, so question is, do you have any, as, and you mentioned the Israeli communicate, journalism and so forth, do you have any strategic um, suggestions for everybody, because like you're dealing with this subject? Yeah. And All right, uh, let, let me answer that, because it's too complicated to try and answer with other questions. Quickly though, uh, first of all, uh, I think that Israeli journalists are some of the most stunningly aggressive pro this, you know, courtiers in Andelin's court uh, that I've ever seen. I mean, when I first started on this, I had chanced on um, Nachum Barnea and, uh, and Beit Michael, and I asked them about this, and Beit Michael's response was, and this was after the investigation had already come out. And I said, what about the investigation? Ah, you know, just some conspiracy nut. He made it up. The boy committed suicide. I said, the boy committed suicide? Are you kidding? Um, he said, uh, I said, are you being ironic? And he said, no, I'm never ironic, which meant that he was being ironic. But, but the, the attitude, and I gave a talk at, uh, at um, uh, in Jerusalem at Mishkan uh, Ochananim, and there were journalists and professors of media in the audience, and I showed the stuff I showed you, and then at the end somebody got up and their professor who had written books on the role of the media and politics and the peace process, and he said, "What? Okay, let's say you're right. Let's say it was staged. So what? We've killed more than 800 uh, of their kids, uh, and so the point is, and and then uh, what's his name?" Uh, I'm going on too long. Uh, so it seems to me the Israeli press really needs to re-examine what they're doing. Will they do it there? I mean, some of the most arrogant people in the world are Israeli leftists. Um, the other thing is that Jews in general have this whole uh, stunningly self-critical uh, nature that leads them, I, I think, you know, that, that, that Jewish self-criticism, which it goes way, it goes into what I call um, uh, masochistic omnipotence complex. It's all our fault and if only we could change everything would be better. Um, so you get these people who are ready. Michael Lerner is a good example. In fact, it was analyzing Michael Lerner that led me to come up with this phrase. So you have these people who are beating themselves and, and for therapeutic reasons. I mean, I think this was what Benny Morris was doing when he we was saying, yeah, we kicked out all these refugees, these, all these Palestinians. We made all these refugees thinking if we apologize to them, so it's what I call therapeutic history. Well, the problem is that this kind of therapeutic history is, in fact, um, if you will, this kind of therapeutic history is um, creating crisis amongst outsiders. How can anybody understand that the Jews would admit to stuff they haven't done when just about everybody reluctantly admits to stuff they have done? So the general attitude of somebody from the outside is to say, look, you know, if they admit to this, then they must have done even more, right? So when the Israelis say, we're sorry, we might have killed them, they think, ah, they did kill them. So, Ben, okay, I'll try to make it very quick. 
uh, more general, uh, do you think that the use of the, this image in the media, mm -hmm. is it something about the, specifically about the image or about the timing, the, situ the current the situation during the 2000s? Yeah. So is it, if this image will happen, such an image will happen today, would it have the same effect? No, I think, uh, look, you know, you had some of these images, you had the babies at Kfarkana, you had the um, Huda Alia at the beach in, you know, when the bomb exploded on the beach in Gaza and stuff. And that didn't have the same impact. Now, to some extent, you know, you, you never, it's never like the first time. Um, so, in that sense, I'm not sure. But I think that, by and large, there's, uh, certainly since Lebanon, there's a much greater awareness on the part of the media that they are being had. And there's a somewhat of a reluctance to run anything that comes out the way that they did at this point. But I think this image came at a key moment because this was, you know, you had had seven years of somewhat restrained Palestinian, uh, restraint on the Palestinians attacking Israel because the pro peace process was going and the Israelis were making concessions and so on. So, and this was really the trigger that l allowed the explosion, if you will, uh, I won't go into a medieval analogy. Okay, last <laughs> Professor, in America, you, you, there, there, two images come to my mind, sadly enough, in the front page of the New York Times, right. which are just as problematic, and there is a pattern, right. there is a pattern, right. if you allow me to tie it, to the Al-Dura. Right. The first picture that comes to mind, that perhaps people will remember, is a bloodied young man sure, running in front of a policeman with right. a stick raised, right. Underneath uh, is a, a Palestinian being beaten by a Muslim. Until some poor woman screams to her friends that, my God, that's my nephew who I sent to Israel to right. learn. Right. In fact, her. the kid was just brothers. being beaten up by a gang of, of Arabs, and the cop was running after them. Right. Second, a picture of a tank. Right. With and two kids, on. little babies, throwing right. rocks at this tank. What a terrible thing on the front page of the New York Times until you look at it with your eyes, as was done, and you discover that the gun is in the rear, and the tracks are in the rear, and in fact, as is common when a tank moves that way and is not attacking anyone, it was in, it was going home, it was away from all of this. These kids came out in the street and were throwing rocks. The point of that is, they were also taken by stringers for the Associated Press, as well as this, there were Arab right. stringers, as well as the, the, the stringer for the CNN, right. who I personally heard talking on the, on the television, saying in the middle of the night, we have our position here, and they have their position there. And I said to myself, I didn't realize CNN actually was in the middle of a war that they had a position. She got fired because it was just too far. What is the pattern, sir? Okay. Arabs. Associated um, press right. stringers. Okay. Someone has to screen right. it. This is but that's the New York Times. This Not F2. Right. This is this is what I call Pallywood. And the basic theme of Pallywood is frame the story as the Palestinian David and Israeli Goliath. So you see a picture of an Israeli soldier brandishing a baton and a bloody kid underneath him. It's got to be a Palestinian because who would be beating who would beat up uh, uh, this kid other than the Israelis? Uh, this is incidentally, and that was literally the day before the image of Aldora. So I, I actually have a, a post of my blog on this, which are called Black Hearts and Red Spades. 
Um, there was an experiment that Thomas Kuhn did, or no, that Thomas Kuhn cites in his book on the um, structure of scientific revolutions, where he talks about how hard it is for people to see anomalies and the way they cram things into their expectations. And so he shows people uh, playing cards and asks them to identify them. Some of the playing cards have red spades and black hearts. And people just ride over. They don't notice it because they, their expectations mean that they read it the way they want. So that's one thing. And I think that framing of the Palestinian conflict uh, or the Arab-Israeli, it's actually the Arab-Israeli conflict, not the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, Arafat didn't say no because the Palestinians, he said no because of the Arabs. Um, I think that framing of the Arab-Israeli conflict is catastrophic. And I think, I mean, let me put it this way. I think it's perfectly legitimate to say some people can look at this. Robert Fisk is an intelligent guy. He looks at it and he sees it in this way and he finds plenty of evidence. It's not that you couldn't find a decent argument for this. Just like you can't find a decent argument and data points to argue that the uh, solar system, that the planets revolve around the Earth and the sun revolves around the Earth. It's, it's, it's an argument. You can make it. It's not a good argument, but it's an argument. It's understandable. Why? Virtually everybody in the media court lines up with this argument is another question. And there I think, first of all, let me cite uh, Pierre-André Taguieff, whose book uh, cover I showed you. He has a great line, when all the fish are swimming in the same direction, it's because they're dead. And so why are all the fish swimming in the same direction? It's not because they're dead. I think that the sort of magnet under the table that explains the, the way the metal filings line up is intimidation. I think our mainstream media are deeply intimidated, particularly the ones who are over there, but even the ones who are back here. And that, that intimidation, they can't admit that intimidation to their public because it would destroy their credibility, and they can't admit that intimidation to themselves because it would mean they'd have to say they're cowards. So what do they do? They become advocates. And that way they say, I'm not being intimidated into covering the story this way. I want to cover the story this way. And so you end up with this advocacy of a Palestinian David and Israeli Goliath. And it is catastrophic to our understanding. And let me just add, because I know this is my last comment, uh, let me add that this is something that afflicts not just the media, it afflicts academia. Um, and uh, we've got a conference coming up uh, this weekend here, which illustrates the way in which Academia has literally been colonized by not just partisans, but by real sort of uh, intellectual terrorists. On that note, uh, thank you very much, Professor. And thank you for coming. The next seminar is on the 23rd of October. It should be fascinating. We're having a person who runs a uh, Harvard Global Voices. He's the editor of the Iran section, and he's speaking about the internet and anti-Semitism in Iran. And he's Iranian, so it should be fascinating. Thank you.